you're going to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 121 this morning. Psalm 121, there should be a Bible around you somewhere, or if you want to use your phone, your device, whatever you got, Psalm 121. And if you're new around here, we want to welcome you again. Uh, we're glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, my name is Ben, I'm the pastor here at Strong Tower. And, uh, next Sunday, actually, we have a thing called Starting Point after church. It's like a 15-minute gathering. we got drinks and snacks, and you can just get to know some of our leadership, our staff. We get to hear you, uh, whatever questions you may have about our church. We'd love to get to know you. That's next Sunday, every second Sunday of the month, okay? Psalm 121, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word, hear the Word of the Lord. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out. And you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text this morning. Trouble don't last always. Trouble don't last always. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, we are grateful for your keeping hand. We are grateful this morning that as we sing and we celebrate and even are reminded as we read your scriptures that you keep us. It's who you are. It's in your nature. It's how you relate to us. And so God, as we... Uh, Look at who you are today. We pray you would work on our hearts to remember the gospel, to see it fresh this morning, that you love us and you keep us. We pray, God, you would work through your word this morning, wherever we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 1997, there was a hit movie, you may have heard of it, Titanic. It was, at the time, the highest grossing uh, movie in in the box office. I think they they estimate today's uh, amount would have been somewhere around $1.2 billion. People were going crazy over Leonardo DiCaprio and the sinking ship, right? They're they're going to see it multiple times. I remember uh, growing up and hearing people who went multiple, you know, 10, 12 times to see this movie. It It was just this fanaticism. Over the Titanic. And now you fast forward a few decades and there's actually a group of shipbuilders in China who are creating an exact replica of the Titanic ship. They're they're creating this tourist attraction where you could go on the very ship, you know, not the exact one that's at the bottom of the ocean, but you could go on a, a replica just like Leonardo DiCaprio. And you could go and and you could see all the beautiful ballrooms and dance in them. You could stay in these historic looking rooms and you could eat this wonderful food. And and they even have it where where they're going to simulate some of the disaster, right? The disaster where they hit the iceberg in 1912 and the the ship goes down. They're going to have it where you can be a part of that. You can feel what it was like to hit the iceberg. The only thing is the ship is not going to go anywhere. It's going to be docked permanently on land. It's going to be all made-believe. And you, as the tourist, you get to go on the ship, and you get to experience the movie, experience the 
the history, but you don't have to have any of the risk, none of the danger. You'll never be in the Atlantic Ocean. And it's, it's tourism, right? I mean, we're, we're kind of familiar with the idea in our culture, this entertainment culture that we live in, where, where we're used to people crafting these experiences for us. If you've ever been to a theme park, or maybe you've taken a vacation to another city, and, and you kind of get online, and you look at what are the places I want to see. I mean, typically you don't go on vacation, and you just kind of show up and hope that something happens. You might want to hit certain places. You want to go to a famous restaurant or, or your friend told you about a historical site you need to go see or you got family members you want to visit, whatever it is. And, and you kind of craft this experience. Maybe, maybe you even go another step and you've got a tour guide. And what they do their whole career is to make sure you get the most out of your experience. Right? They'll take you to all the highlights and they'll tell you all the history and all the background and they'll make sure you get the most out of it. And when you come away, you feel like you've experienced it, right? But really, you and I know, just because you went somewhere for a couple days, maybe a couple weeks, doesn't mean you really know what it's like to be there. Right? You probably, on your tour, didn't go see the public schools. And you're trying to figure out what education looks like. On your tour, you probably didn't go check out the police department. On your your tour, you you probably didn't go to areas that it says on TripAdvisor to stay away from. You you don't really know what it's like to be there until you're there long enough to hear the the cries of the people. You're you're there long enough to know kind of how things work. You're there long enough to listen to what questions people are asking. You have to be there long enough to to walk with somebody. And what we see is there's this difference between where you're, you're living somewhere and you're just kind of passing through. I mean, we see it all the time. This, this tourism culture has creeped into the church. And I say we have, in some ways, this tourism Christianity where we are excited about an experience but not about the journey that God wants us to walk, right? There's this, uh, there's this market, if you will. There's this good market for religious experience. But very few people have any enthusiasm or interest in the long road of obedience with Jesus. We want tourism. We want the highlights, right? I want to show up to church, and I want to be wowed by the music, and I I want the preaching to be on point, and I want the kids' ministry to be the best hour of my kids' life, and and I want everybody to be nice to me, and I don't want anybody to question me, and and I want everybody to say hi to me, and everything needs to be just perfect. I want just the highlights, and then I want to return home back to normal life as if it was some kind of tourist attraction. And the problem with tourism Christianity is discipleship, following Jesus, is not tourism. The Bible describes it as a pilgrimage. What's the difference, right? Tourism is this idea that you're going somewhere just to visit for a moment and then you're back. And and you're not really going anywhere. You're just kind of passing through. You're doing this thing. You're doing that thing. And then you leave. And it's all about the experience and the entertainment. But pilgrimage implies that you are headed somewhere. There's a destination And in the Bible, it's this pilgrimage that we are headed toward God. We're going somewhere. We spend our whole lives going somewhere. We're going toward God. 
And that's what this series is going to be about. Today we're starting a new series called On the Way. Somebody say, On the Way. On the Way. way. We're, We're starting a new series in the Psalms, in this group of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. And and it's this group of Psalms that the Jewish folks would have sang together as they made their way to Jerusalem. Three times a year, God told the Jews that they were to make their pilgrimage, make their way to the city of God, to to Jerusalem. They were to come uh, the Feast of Passover in the spring. They were to come uh, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, or actually... Uh, the Feast of uh, Pentecost first in the summer, and then the Feast of Tabernacles again in the fall. And so these three times of the year, all of the people from Israel would come to Jerusalem for the feast. They'd come for the celebration. They'd come for the worship. And God had told them, I want you to come worship me during these feasts. But the, the, the experience was not just to come to Jerusalem for the feast. It was this metaphor for their whole life. Because Jerusalem was was set on a hill. It was above everywhere else in Israel. And so wherever you came from Israel, you were ascending up to Jerusalem. You hear it all the time in the Bible that we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going up to Jerusalem. Because wherever you are, you're going up to God. And so it was this metaphor for life. That as they were making their way to the festival, they were heading toward God. They were heading on this journey To be with him. And so these next 10 weeks, what we're going to look at is what does that journey look like? What what does it look like to move towards God? What does it look like to to not be a tourist who just kind of pops in and pops out, but, but you're headed somewhere with God? You're moving towards him in your life. And and what we're going to see is as we look at this first uh first psalm in the series, we're going to see that on the way, one of the first things that we come against is trouble. We come against this trouble that we got to make sense of. What, what do we do as we're headed towards God and we hit these bumps in the road and we hit these difficult times? How do we make sense of the trouble? And so if you're taking notes, the first thing I want to look at this morning is uh, troubles along the way. Troubles along the way. Look at verse 1 as he begins the psalm. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, remember, these are the faithful Jews who are on their way to Jerusalem following the command of God. They're doing what God had told them to do. They're doing what really cost them a lot, right? This was not something that was simple. If you've ever traveled across the country, you know you got to plan, you got to pack, you got to get all your stuff together, and you have the internet. You have an automobile. These folks had no refrigeration, and they're traveling across their country to the city of Jerusalem, and they got to prepare all these things. It's going to cost them. It's, it's going to take time. They're going to have to leave their family, some of them. Some of them are going to have to leave their job for a season. So there was, it was intense, and it was difficult, but they're making, the, they're making the journey because God told them to. They're responding in obedience, but listen to this, that in their response to obedience... Or with, with obedience, they come across trouble. We're not really told what it is, right? The psalmist just implies that there's some kind of trouble on the way. It could have been robbers. I mean, we know from the Good Samaritan story and, and other places in the Bible that along these paths, there were often people who would hide out and they would jump you and steal your stuff and, and leave you for dead, right? It was dangerous tra- traveling. We don't know what's going on with the psalmist. We don't know what he's come across, but we know this he's in trouble. 
And it makes you ask the question, wait a minute. Why in the world would they come across trouble when they're responding in obedience? In other words, if you're following God, I thought when you follow God, it guaranteed blessing. I thought when you decided to make a sacrifice for the Lord and you responded to him with your life and your your gift and whatever it may be, he is going to pour on you all the things you've ever desired. And instead, you come against trouble. What is going on? I thought, I thought obedience equaled blessing. I mean, that's what they told me on the television. That, that's what somebody told me. They, they told me that if I follow Jesus, my life will get better. If I follow Jesus, things are going to get easier. Right? That's the way we determine the will of the Lord, isn't it? It must be God's will. It's easy. It must be God's will. It's clear. It must be God's will. I feel a sense of peace. What if you got it wrong? What if trouble is the sign that you're on the path toward him? What if trouble is the sign that this is the way to God? See, for the Christian, listen to me, troubles aren't an an exception. They're actually the expectation. For Christians, troubles aren't an exception to the rule. It's the expectation. Maybe you watched the the reveal of of the new Tesla truck. Have have you heard of it? The the, the cyber truck is what Elon Musk calls it. And and if you've watched the video, it's, it's... Tragic and hilarious, but, but they're, they're calling this thing the Cybertruck, and, and it's supposed to start production in 2021, and I think it's going to be like $40,000, which when you think about it, I thought it'd be like $100,000, because this thing is like off-the-chain features and gadgets and all kinds of things that, that the truck is supposed to do and be, and, and the truck is, is a fully electric truck, and, and the, the most famous thing that it, it kind of got attention for was he claimed it was bulletproof bulletproof. So during the reveal, they, you know, they got all these people in LA and they're watching this big reveal. They, they show everybody what it is. And then he brings out one of his lead designers who is going to you know, show some things. And, and the, the thing is going well. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's excited about it. Then he, he tells his designer, he says, grab that sledgehammer they got laying on the, on the table. Grab the sledgehammer and hit the door of the truck. And everybody's like, He's really going to hit the truck. And so he grabs the sledgehammer, he swings it, and he hits the door, and it bounces off. Not a scratch, not a dent, nothing. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Everybody cheers. And then he says, all right, grab that weight. There's a little uh, you know, circular metal weight. He says, grab the weight and throw it at the window. So he grabs the weight, and he, he chucks it at the window, and it just shatters. <laughs> and everybody gasps. <gasps> And you know, if you watch the video, he says a couple words he shouldn't say. And, and he's upset, he's shocked, he's ashamed. And then they both look at each other like, what happened? And then he says, you must, this is what he says, you must have thrown it too hard. Remember, it's bulletproof. You must have thrown it too hard. Pick it up, throw it again a little softer this time. So he picks it up and he just kind of tosses it at the other window, shatters again. <laughs> And they look at each other in disgust and shame and shock. How could this be? It's supposed to be bulletproof. 
And clearly it wasn't. See, their, their shock, their surprise revealed their expectation. Their surprise revealed, this is not how I thought it should be. And listen to me, some of us in this room, we, we are shocked, we're surprised by suffering and difficulty in our life because we've been lied to. We've been lied to that the Christian life is, is this life that if you come to Jesus, everything's going to get better for you. Your marriage is going to get better. Your finances are going to get better. Your friendships are going to get better. Your work is going to get better. Everything is going to get better. And so when it happens to you that something shows up in your life and you're like, it's not supposed to be this way, you're shocked. You're surprised. I was told that everything would get easier. I was told that everything would get clearer. And then there's unexplainable sickness in our body. There's troubling conflict with our teenagers. There's exhausting care in our families. There's the reality of suffering that catches us by surprise. God, I thought following you meant my life would get easier. I thought I was moving towards you. And God says, you are. This is the path. This is the path. See, we're we're not supposed to be surprised by suffering, but listen, it's all right to be saddened by it. It's all right to to grieve it. You don't have to be astonished by it, but but you can grieve it, right? It's it's what the Bible calls lament. See, most of the psalms in the Bible are these lament psalms, and and lamenting is is the the art of, of being sad in God's presence. It's it's the idea that you you can bring your hurts and your pains and your struggles and your troubles to God and say, God, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. I'm not surprised by it because I know that this is the life that I have been called into, but I am saddened by it. It wrecks me. I don't know how to make sense of what what you've allowed in my life. I don't know how to make sense of what's going on in my friend's life. I don't know how to make sense of what's going on in our country. I I don't know, God. Help me. And you lament by faith. See, that's that's the difference between grumbling and lamenting. Anybody can grumble. Anybody can accuse God from a distance. Grumbling is, is complaining with no faith. Lamenting is complaining with faith. Lamenting is saying, God, I don't understand it. I don't even like it. But I know you understand it. And I know that you are bigger than this. I know that you love me in the middle of this. And so the fear of lament, listen to me, the fear of lament is that if you are honest with God and you you admit the troubles in your life and the pain in your heart and the difficulty in your past, if you admit that to God, He's not going to love you anymore. Because he can't handle the real you. The fear is that if I'm honest with God, that, then he's going to reject me. And so I just pretend like everything's all right. And I tell somebody else, but I never bring it to God. And so all I'm doing is grumbling. I never actually lament. I never actually bring it to him. But the way you find freedom to lament is to know that suffering is is the normal shape of the Christian life. That when you suffer, you enter into, as Paul says, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You're entering into the shape of of how Jesus lived. And and it's in that that you find out, that's where I find him. I find Jesus right in the middle of the loss. I find him right in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the questions and the confusion. I find him right there. And I get to be sad in his presence. 
I get to say, Lord, help me. Help me. And when you get there, when, when you realize this is the way towards him, you find out that it, it really it changes the way you see it, how you respond to it. It comes down to where we look. And this is the second point, looking to the hills. Look at what the psalmist says next in verse, in verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Or where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now stop right there for a second. The psalmist is, is indicating his search for help, right? He, he's experiencing trouble. He's experiencing difficulty. He's wondering, what do I do? And then he looks outside of himself and he says, where am I going to get rescued? How am I going to get out of this? And he mentions the hills. But the hills have, have a history with Israel. The hills were often called the high places, right? The hills were the places where People would set up these altars and these shrines to these false gods. And if you needed something and, and, and God wasn't working on your time or God wasn't working in your way, you would go to the hills, right? Let's say uh, you, know, you, you didn't have a good crop year that year. You're a farmer and, and you, need, you need better crops. You would go to the hills and you'd worship the God of rain. Or maybe you had a bad relationship and, and you needed something to change in your relationship. You'd go to the hills. And you'd worship the God of relationships. If you had you know, some kind of conflict in your family, you'd go to the hills and you'd find a God who could meet your need. Think of it like an idle market. Whatever you need, we can get you. And so he says, do I look to the hills? Do, do I go to the place where, where they say they can fix all my problems? And he answers his own question. He says, no, I... I get my help from the Lord. Listen to this. He says, the maker of heaven and earth. He says, this is, he answers his own question. He says, why would I look to the hills when I can look to the God who made the hills? Why do I look to the idols on those hills when I can look to the God who made the things that made those idols? It doesn't make any sense. Why would I do this? And he starts to reflect on the foolishness of his idolatry. It's, it's what Isaiah the prophet picks up in Isaiah 44. If you've ever read Isaiah 44, it's kind of a comedic chapter in, in the Bible. Uh, he, he starts talking about how you know, these people are making these idols, but they make these idols out of the same trees that they made their fire out of. He says, you cut down a tree, you make it into some logs, and then you make a fire to warm your body. Then you take another log and you carve it into a god and you bow down and you worship it. How foolish is that? I mean, God just kind of mocks the whole idea of idolatry. But it's what we do, right? Why would we ever bow down to little green slips of paper with numbers on them? Why would we ever bow down to the body of a man or a woman? Why would we ever bow down to the opinion of a friend? I mean, just the foolishness of our idolatry. The psalmist is wrestling, why would, I, why would I go to the hills when I could go to the maker of heaven and earth? And in other words, he's saying God created those things with the power of his voice. With just his voice, he spoke the mountains into existence. He spoke the stars into spinning. He spoke the rivers into running. He spoke the heavens into glory. He spoke the plants into fruitfulness. He spoke the fish into swimming. He spoke the birds into flying. He spoke humanity into purpose. How much more help can the creator give than the creation? He's the maker of heaven and earth. And so the psalmist is calling us 
to ask, where are we looking? Where are we looking? When worry fills our hearts, where are you looking? When trouble fills your path, where are you looking? When suffering overwhelms you, where are you looking? Because idolatry, listen, idolatry is what we worship when we're worried. It's what we worship when we're worried. Our idols are are good things that become God things. They're good things that God has created for our enjoyment. And then when we get under pressure, when we get worried, when we get stressed, when life is not going the way we want it to go, those things become ultimate things. And often you don't even know that it's happening. You don't even know because it's real subtle. It's beneath the surface in your own life. It's, it's what you put your trust in, what you put your hope in. And so I want to give us just a few practical questions to be able to identify some of our own idols that may be going on below the surface. Here's three questions I want you to write down if, you, if you're taking notes. Number one, where does your imagination wander? Where does your imagination wander? Someone once said this, the God of your heart is the magnet of your mind. In other words, whatever you think about when you have free time, whatever you think about where, where your mind wanders when, when you have the opportunity to just sit down and relax and think, and, and maybe it's for you, you start thinking about that man or that woman that you think is going to fill you up. You start thinking about your workplace and all the, all the work that you wish you could do to get ahead and, and to get successful and that people would think highly of you. Maybe for you, it's, it's the, the opinion of your children and, and all you can think about is how they think of you and how others think of them. And, and so it just consumes your imagination and your thoughts. It might be an idol. It might be an idol. Second question, where does your money go? Jesus said himself, he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We've said it a couple times here before. Jesus is not saying that if, if your heart is somewhere, your money will follow it. He's saying your heart will follow your money. If you trace your money, you'll find your heart. And for many of us, that, that could be you know, materialism or things that make us feel good and feel comfortable. But for many more of us, I think, it's, it's the spirit of cheapness. It's, it's this idea that, that we worship money, not by spending it or giving it or, or other things, but we, we want to just keep it. We want to store it up. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel secure. It makes us feel like we're, we're not as foolish as the other people because we've got this. Maybe it's an idol. Third question. What's your response to suffering and difficulty? Because our real God always gets revealed when we go through hard times. That's what's happening in this psalm. He, he's coming up against difficulty. He's coming up against a, a thing that's too big for him. And, and he knows this, this is the moment I'm going to decide who is my real God. Right? It's, it's what happens in the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, Satan comes to God to tempt Job. And, and Satan knows that the way you get someone to say they don't want to follow God is you put hard things in their way. And so for many of us, maybe you grew up in a, in a legalistic background, a legalistic faith. And, and, and so for you, you it, everything's based on performance. You do for God and God does back for you. Right? And so you've been put in the work, you've been doing for God, you've been doing for God, and then life gets hard, and you're like, God, what is going on? I've been serving you. 
And it revealed what you were really worshiping. It was not the real God. It was the results you were hoping for. It just might be an idol. And, and this is how idolatry works. It's, it's below the surface. It's, it's looking to the hills for hope. It's looking to something else that can be your savior, be your keeper, be the one who's with you in whatever you're going through. And it's always good things that become God things. Ask yourself, where am I looking? Where am I looking? Because an idol becomes more than a good thing. It's a worship thing. And idols need more than removal. They need to be replaced. There must be a greater God that consumes our worship and comforts us in our worries. And this is the last point I'll end here. Our keeper. Our keeper. Look at verse 5. The psalmist goes on this long string of just beautiful promises. In verse 5 he begins. He says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now the psalmist gives the Lord this this beautiful title. He calls him a keeper. And the title is is used to be uh, describing someone who who watches over you, who who keeps you, who, who protects you, who guards you, who gives you attentive care, right? It was used when someone would watch over a garden or they watch over a flock of sheep or even watch over their family. It was, it was meant to be this very intimate, attentive care and protection. And he uses it six times uh, to, to, to describe the protective care of the Lord. He, he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He's making promises that the idols could never make. He's making promises that the hills could never deliver on, right? No idol has the power to sustain us. No idol has the ability to protect us. No idol has the stamina to satisfy us. Nothing. But only God can keep these promises. Only the Lord has the ability to make these promises and deliver on them forever. In fact, it's, it's hard to imagine which part is better in the promise in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, what's more comforting? The fact that he keeps us now or that it goes on forevermore? I mean, what, what is more amazing that God would enter in right now and keep you wherever you are or that you can know that forever he'll never stop? He'll never stop. He will keep you. He'll keep you when the money runs out. He'll keep you when the friends leave you. He'll keep you when the words are like fiery darts. He'll keep you when the road looks terrifying and your heart is weary. He is your keeper. And of course we know the promise to keep us from all evil doesn't mean that he now promises this comforting, cushy life. What it means is you'll have a well-protected life. You'll have a well Armored life. In other words, we don't deny the darkness both within us and outside of us, but we know for sure that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 23, we can say with confidence, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For what? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, they keep me. In the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the pain, and no matter what I'm walking through, no matter how I've failed, in the valley of darkness, you keep me. You comfort me. See, all the water in the ocean can't sink a ship unless it overwhelms it. Nor can all the trouble 
in all the world, in every life, make you fall unless the Lord allows it. He's your keeper. Our God is the protector. He's the upholder. The same God of Genesis who spoke light and darkness. The the same God who created the mountains with his voice is the same God who keeps you. Right? And if he can make you, surely he can keep you. If he can make you, surely he can keep you. No matter the circumstance. In 2008, uh, there was this remarkable uh, documentary that came out called Man on Wire. And it examines the, the most amazing feat I've ever heard of by this man named Petit, or, uh, Felipe Petit. He was a tightrope walker who was famous in the time. He had done different acts that were you know, out of this world crazy. But he had this crazy idea that he would put a rope between the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center. This was in the 70s when it was still being built. He would put a rope between the North and the South Tower and he would walk across. Now, this is illegal. So it's, it's been called the, the greatest uh, art, you know, artistic crime of the 20th century. But he decided this would be just over the top, you know, the, the adventure he'd been looking for. And so he gets some of his friends together. They make a plan. They sneak up into the top of one of the towers. They shoot a wire across. This is a true story. Shoot a wire across, and he gets to work. Word had got out in New York City, and there's thousands of people about a quarter of a mile below them. Watching, screaming, they call the police. The police are now waiting on both sides, on the two towers, waiting for him. He spends 45 minutes on the wire. 45 minutes. He made eight walks back and forth. And get this, he had no net, no harness, nothing that tied him to the wire. This man is crazy. And of course, after 45 minutes and eight walks back and forth, he, he decides to turn himself in. The police arrest him. They give him some crazy penalty where he has to, he has to perform for children in Central Park or something like that. It, it, you've got to go look it up. But, but they interview him when he comes down. And the news reporter who interviewed him said it never crossed his mind once to use a net. And they asked him why. And this, this is what he said. I love his quote. He said, I've never fallen. Now, yes, I've, hidden, I've, I've hit the earth many, many times, but I've never fallen. I've never fallen. I've, I've hit the earth many, many times, but I've never fallen. I mean, it, it's a crazy amount of confidence because he knew he had never fallen. And listen to me, some of us this morning, I want to end with this. Some of us this morning, you've hit the earth many, many times. You've hit the earth in despair and sin. You've hit the earth in destruction and and overwhelmed depression. You've hit the earth in in all the, the pain and the sorrow and the ruin of your life. You've hit the earth many, many times. And you've gotten to the point where you said, I don't know if I can take it anymore. I think God has given up on me. I think God doesn't care about me. I think the best thing in my life would just be to turn around and go the other way and give up. I'm here to tell you this morning, he is your keeper. And that in him, you will never fall. You've gotten to the point where you say, help! Help me! Where does it come from? And God answers you. He answers you today. Help has already come. Help is a person. Help is is the one who came in human form. 
who came to live among us and die among us, the one who is our Savior, Jesus, who left the heights of heaven to come down to the depths of sin and suffering and pain on this earth. Jesus, the ultimate pilgrim, had his feet kept by the Father. God kept his feet in the wilderness as he was tempted for us. He kept his feet when he walked on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and and healed us. And he kept his feet when they climbed the mountain of transfiguration and showed us his glory. He kept his feet when Mary bathed them with his tears as he loved a sinner in desperate need. He kept his feet when they were nailed to the cross. On his path to righteousness for us, he kept them. On the cross, when his feet were pierced, they crushed the enemy's head. His feet that crushed the pain of sin and suffering. His feet that crushed the curse that keeps us from God. His feet that give us victory. And his feet that will come once again because they were raised up to newness of life. The fact that our Father kept the feet of Jesus means we can trust him to keep us. He can keep us in whatever we walk through. He can keep us so that we never fall in Him, that one day those feet will step again on this earth and every last pilgrim will make his way home. As the old spiritual rings, I'm so glad trouble don't last always. I'm so glad trouble don't last always. May not come when you want Him, but He's on time. In times of trouble, found Him to be a friend of mine. When storm clouds rise, He'll be there. All your burdens I know the Lord will bear. Trouble don't last always. He's your keeper. He kept his son Jesus so that he could keep you. Do you need help this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and and you've been crying out for help. You've been crying out that somebody, somewhere, somehow would, would deliver you. But you've been looking to the hills. You've been looking to relationships in your life. You've been looking to your bank account. You've been looking to your workplace. You've been looking somewhere else. And God is waiting for you to say, I will look to you. You are my help. I will look to the Savior who on the hill of Calvary died for me so that he could be my greatest help. Will you look to him this morning? In just a moment, we're going to have prayer as we sing our our last couple of songs um, We're going to have communion, and and during communion, you you can pray. You can ask God, be my help. Be my help. Let's pray together. Father, we are...